Welcome to episode 55 of the False Neutral Podcast. Garrett is still away. Eric is here with me, and we're at uh, the Double Nickel. I can't drive. <laughs> I had a t-shirt that I got at a dealership that had the 55 with the, the no circle and the slash, and it said, civil disobedience, go for it. <laughs> My good law-abiding parents uh, really disliked that T-shirt, but that used to be a real thing that, you know, the the federally mandated 55-mile-an-hour speed limit was a, was a real flashpoint for a lot of riders and drivers, and now it's just a quaint memory. For most places. <laughs> Although I'm, I'm still, like, up in, up in uh, Washington and the Seattle area, and even, I think, parts of uh, Oregon were... You know, around where Garrett is, and because he's right on the border there, uh, it's a lot of fifty-five and sixty, even on their main highways up there. Yeah, but which that, is odd. <laughs> I I don't think it is as objectionable to people because now it is kind of tailored to the conditions of the road, mm. whereas the federal speed yeah. limit is you're all going to save gas, so nobody can go faster than this, regardless of whether you're on. Four lanes and, you know, visibility for five miles ahead of you in the middle of, well, I don't know, Nebraska or Wyoming, <laughs> Wyoming or, or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, and then, uh, when gas went back down to being quote unquote normal pricing, oh, well, um, uh, oh yeah, it saves lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then for the, most of the people listening, because they don't remember, not only on, on speedometers on cars, but on motorcycles, too, 55 had to be much la- in a much larger font and, and highlighted in, in some measure so yes. that you knew that that's what the maximum speed limit was for the U.S. And I think it, that was required the same years that they could not go higher than 85 miles an yep. hour. Yep, exactly. We like to talk about the good old days, but not everything was so good. No. Nope. Well, our subject this week is a bit of a niche. I was, <laughs> it, it all happened because I was uh, talking with a friend of mine about, not a friend of mine, a online chat partner. And uh, he was saying he really wanted a uh, Moto Guzzi Nuovo Falcone, which was their post-war single cylinder, not even post war, uh sixties. They kind of reintroduced something that was like their old classic longitudinal horizontal single cylinder bike that was the Falcone. Well they came out with a new version of it called the Nuovo Falcone. And uh, I said, wouldn't it be a whole lot cheaper and easier to get an Aramaki single? They're both horizontal singles. And he said, I never considered that. It just doesn't have the same vibe to me. But anyways, I was thinking about those two bikes, and I really th- thought about how truly interesting that engine configuration was. And I said to Eric and Garrett, hey, we should do an episode on horizontal uh, cylinders. <laughs> and was met with... Uh, Crickets? <laughs> Okay. Not quite, but. Okay, we could if you want to do that. So I don't know why, um, but we will. I I have to say I I pulled just pulled up the picture of this uh, Guzzi, and it's beautiful, 
but it also reminds me of something between uh, a, a Vincent Black Shadow and a um, Excelsior. Not an Excelsior. What was? What am I thinking of? What was Lawrence of Arabia's bike? I'm drawing a complete like Bruff Superior. Oh, a Bruff Superior. Thank you. Uh, I think the fishtail, uh, the 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 fishtail exhaust there was the Bruff, and then the just the way the rear seat is on the rear fender and just the 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 pilot seat and just some of the tank there. It's like oh, Vincent Black Shadow. Yes. <laughs> well, they had two versions of the Nuovo Falcone, and one was it was the Italian uh, military standard Italian military bike for a number of years. And most of them were the military version. They did sell a civilian version of it that was slightly different. It had a one piece seat rather than uh, the military uh, twin saddles on it and stuff like that. But uh, uh, it, it's not as pretty as the original Falcone they did enclose the flywheel because the old Falcone had a big, huge, exposed flywheel down by your feet. Well, that's safe. They they called it the <laughs> the bacon slicer. And uh, Nuovo Falcone customizers all take the little crankcase cover off to expose it like the real vintage Falcones. So, mm-hmm. but uh, it's an interesting engine design. And I'm surprised it has not been done more. Uh, you end up with a long bike, but you end up with a really low center of gravity and a really narrow bike, unlike uh, like an opposed twin or something like that. And when I say longitudinal, it's really confusing because when you talk about a transverse engine, you're usually referring to, like in a car, a transverse engine means the crankshaft is transverse. It goes from side to side. Mm-hmm. A transverse four as opposed to a longitudinal for old uh, Indian fours and uh, Excelsior fours were longitudinal. And when they go across, the cylinders go across, that's transverse. When you talk about V-twins, a Guzzi V-twin is normally considered a transverse V-twin, meaning instead of like a Harley, a regular V-twin, it's turned and the cylinders are transverse. They stick out the sides of the bike. So when I say longitudinal, I'm actually referring to the cylinder pointed forward between the frame rails, taking a vertical one and just tipping it forward, even though it has a transverse crankshaft that goes from side to side. Yeah. If that makes any sense. So absolutely. Um, the other one is the, uh, uh, Aramaki. Aramaki, mm-hmm. also known as Harley Sprints for a number of years, the the 250s, 350s, uh, Honda, the famous Cub motor, which has now been cloned and is every little pit bike, and yeah. uh, the CT70, the CT90, the SS90, uh, the, that 100 and, what, about 110 cc and below. Mm-hmm. All over the world, there's a million different versions of that, both push rod and overhead cam running around the world that are quite cool little motors, and you can do all kinds of stuff with them. And they allowed things like step-through frames so that women in skirts could wear them and things like that. And uh, kind of a scooterish look to it with leg guards and stuff like that. So yeah, there's that. 
Uh, the one we really should talk about is the Super Mono, probably yes. the most desirable bike in that configuration, <laughs> yeah. and- which no one will ever hardly see, nonetheless be able to touch, and only a select few will ever ride, own, or hear run. I'm, I'm trying to think. They only built, what, 50 or 75 of these things? Something so like I want to say 75. And yeah, I mean, I remember when this thing came out and I want to say 91, 92, and, and Alan Cathcart got to ride it. And well, of course, Alan Cathcart got to ride all the cool bikes back <laughs> then, too. <laughs> um, and and then yeah, it was such a cool thing. And like, eh, and then even then, I think in 1992, it was like they're only making 75, and it was like 60 or 70 thousand dollars for one. So I, it was ac- crazy. According to Wikipedia, 65 Supermanos were built between 93 and 95. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they were never street legal. They were race only. Yep. But why they never came out with a street rep? They could have sold so many of these. Mm-hmm. Some of it is because the bodywork was gorgeous and it was a more compact version of the Ducati look. Kind of a little vest pocket version of their... Yeah, I mean, it was very 916-ish looking. And it it really was a, a very interesting engine. What they did was, and I, I hope I won't insult our regular listeners, but in to keep this from being too far down in the weeds to lose people, I'm going to give... A little bit of background here. When you have a single cylinder engine, it's inherently got a lot of vibration because you can put counterweights, so, you know, pork chops on the, on the crankshaft equal to the weight of the piston. So when the piston's going down, the weights that counterweight it are going up. You can balance those weights. So you've got the same amount of weight going up and down at all times. The problem is the piston is going up and down in a straight line in one plane. And those cranks are going forward and backwards in a circle as they go up and down. So it's that secondary motion of the forward and back that isn't canceled out by anything. So you end up with this vibration from the crankshaft. When you have a 90 degree V twin, you have that same thing going on in two different planes. You have the same crankshaft weight, but now you've got a piston right and left or, you know, front to back and one up and down so that now you have perfect balance. Having that extra cylinder in effect is its own, uh, balance shaft. Rather than do what a lot of people do is put in reciprocating balance shafts to try and even out that Ducati said, we already make 90 degree V twins. If we wanted to make a single cylinder motor, why don't we leave that second crank, sh- uh, the, that, second connecting rod in place, but instead of putting a piston and a cylinder and valves and cams and a whole cast head on top of that, we'll just put a a weight equal to the weight of the piston at the end of this one. So then everything's still balanced with only one cylinder doing the bang. And in order to locate it within the crankshaft, they just kind of added a little dingle arm and a bearing so that it stayed in one spot while it went up and down and it actually was moving in a very small arc, but the arc was large enough that it didn't make any difference. It acted just like a piston. Ingenious that you could do something this simple with your existing uh, arrangement from the V-twin and end up with a perfectly balanced single cylinder motor. 
That was such a good idea that basically BMW copied it for their parallel twins. So if you look at a cutaway view of like the 800 twin motor from BMW, they've got one of these little reciprocating dingle arms in between the crankshaft at the bottom of it doing exactly the same thing. It's a really cool, neat way to very elegantly handle how to counterbalance a single cylinder. It's um, 550cc and it made 60, let's call it 62 horsepower, (laughs) um, which is pretty crazy. And it was almost 30 foot pounds of torque, but it was like at uh, 10,500 RPM, which when you think of all that weight floating around on a single cylinder, just spinning it to five digits is pretty crazy. Uh, and uh, the, the list price was $30,000, which, okay, that still was a ton of money in, in 1993 or 1994. So <laughs> valve adjustment intervals, 300 miles. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that makes an Aprilia uh, SVX sound like a, a reasonable street motor. <laughs> and, and with a full tank of gas, uh, 300 pounds. Yeah. That, that, what an amazing, amazing bike. Truly, if if I could rewrite history, a street version of that would be something that I would have loved to have seen them actually produce. That's that's almost something given given the um, I don't want to say desire, given the openness of people to smaller displacement bikes. That's almost something you could produce today. I'm sure, and I'm sure given the 30 year, 25 years of, uh, technology, there's ways of making that streetable and, um, uh, and durable enough to, to deal with day to day riding. Quite honestly, going back to the 400 scrambler that we talked about in last Last week's episode. Yep. Uh, that's what they should have done to make a 400 scrambler is taking the rear cylinder off. Even if they, it was a bolt on adapter to the standard crankcase of just making one of these counterweight, uh, dingle arm for the lack of a better term. Yeah. One of these reciprocating counterweights out of that back connecting rod, uh, and having a horizontal single rather than having an equally heavy sleeve down motor with lower capacity. You could have used one of the, uh, 800 scrambler cylinders. And mm-hmm. ended up with a much lighter, much neater bike with a lower center of gravity. Uh, that would have been the way to make a 400 scrambler. And even, I mean, KTM's had some success with, with their thumpers. Granted, those, those aren't horizontal cylinders that we're talking about. Um, but their people are willing to deal with, deal with them. So I, yeah, I agree. I think it'd be very cool. But Ducati's are 90 degree V twins. That's so much a part of their brand identity now that I don't think Ducati w- has been a V twin company, but they're talking about going V four for their super bikes now. So that may, as that evolves, maybe they would be open to doing a single cylinder as well. Who knows? I'm just having a little epiphany here. Having just sat here and talked about how ingenious the reciprocating, counterweight idea was with an extra connecting rod i have i have to apologize to honda because i complained so bitterly on a past podcast about the v3 mvx 
250 that they made, uh, the way they balanced it is they had two horizontal cylinders. This is a two-stroke, but two cylinders pointing forward, one pointing up. And in order to balance the one cylinder and the two cylinders that were at 90-degree angles, they made a big, huge 20-millimeter solid wrist pin oh. in the rear cylinder so that the one piston weighed as much as both of the pistons and connecting rods on the other side. And I thought, well, this is just bodge engineering. This is just what a horrible way. And I just now I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what they did was they incorporated this reciprocating counterbalance for one of the cylinders Mm -hmm. that was the forward cylinder and a piston and cylinder to counteract the other one. Wow, this is this is like a V-twin and a super mono arrangement combined into three cylinders without even having to add a dummy connecting rod. Suddenly what I thought was just horribly stupid engineering that that, <laughs> that was just kludgy to me just became something of pure genius. And and, and this is where we want to go go once back into well it is the Honda motor corporation (laughs) now that doesn't change the fact that the mvx 250 was a horrible 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 motorcycle but that was because of the porting and the exhaust and uh, a whole bunch of other things wrong with that engine none of it had to do with the three-cylinder v3 arrangement so but anyways i i really have bashed honda so bad and i just realized that i have to compliment them on their engineering if i'm going to compliment Ducati on theirs. So, <laughs> uh, but it, it all, all this goes, well, not so much the Ducati. Well, in some ways, the super mono, yes, a little bit, not so much of, of right height, but just center of gravity, um, keeping it low and making it very flickable, uh, for a racetrack. But for the most part, as you said, uh, the appeal has been for low right height, uh, to make it easier for either shorter people or, as you said, step through step through bikes for average people to kind of get on and, and be able to ride. Yeah, yeah. And there are some complications with that, such as do you use a downdraft carburetor or do you put an elbow in that, that so you've got a 90-degree intake tract to a regular side draft motorcycle carb. I've seen them done both ways. Now that they're fuel injected, that really is not that crucial. Um, and as regular, what we would normally call vertical four cylinders have leaned farther and farther over with more inclination to the cylinders over the years mm-hmm. in order to have downdraft carburetors so they got a straight shot straight down through the valve and there's there's a perfect short straight intake that that really kind of started with the fc750 was really where where uh yamaha started putting the carb so they tipped up instead of back so that Mm. you've got a, a straight shot and no curve in it whatsoever you could do something like that. Well, that's what Honda did with the uh, CTX 700. If you look at the CTX 700 twin, both cylinders are inclined over to 28 degrees from perfectly horizontal. So they're inclined a little bit, but it's almost a horizontal longitudinal twin. Yeah. 
Um, the one thing I, and I realize it's an irrational thing, uh, but I always think that you would end up with oiling problems as in the, the bottom part of the cylinder would have a little more oil accumulating versus the top might be a little thin, but that's probably irrational because that's what your, your, uh, oil rings are for is to help control the, the flow around that. Well, it's no different than an opposed twin. A boxer right. motor, it's boxer just motor, one half right. of a boater, boxer motor turned 90 degrees. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, K-bikes. Now, they had a problem yeah. with oil, but that's when you put it on the side stand, because all the, the head was on one side of the bike, so all the piston and cylinders faced one direction. So if you put it on the side stand and left it, all the oil would run, or some of the oil would run down into the cylinders and l- be right behind the rings and leak past there while it was on its side stand. If put on the center stand, didn't happen. Yeah. It, it's funny. Um, those bikes were so popular for so, for so many years at BMW and it's like they've tried, it feels like they've tried to um, expunge that from their history. The K bikes. Yeah. It was, it was to me, it was kind of like they wanted to build a four cylinder, but they had done so much PR work over the years about the superiority of their boxer twins over all of the Japanese inline fours that were so popular that they really couldn't come out and go me too. So mm-hmm. they had to make a four cylinder liquid cooled bike that was an inline four, but they had to do something for purely marketing reasons that made it look and feel and intellectually jive with all of their past yeah. marketing. We are, we are German. We do not make mistakes. We do not go backwards. We, uh, this has, uh, how does Brad say? This has, uh, many more emojis. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I always remember because I was in college when kind of when those things really, really debuted because the K1 was, was a, uh, sci-fi bike when it came out. And I think, I mean, it's, it's not a beautiful bike. It's not a hideous bike, but it's an iconic bike. And it's almost, you'd almost want one in your, in your stable if you could, just because it's so iconic. It wasn't a great bike, but it was an iconic bike. And, um, you know, they were, they were not cheap mo- machines. And then I remember the K75S was sort of, wow, this is, a, it's a little expensive. It's more than all this, 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 but it's a BMW. So it's cool. <laughs> at least that's what the motorcycle magazines at the time were saying. Uh, one bike that I have to mention that is actually kind of in a weird way related to the CTX motors that Honda's come out with, the, the 700 motor, was the Linto. And the Linto was a, a boutique made race bike that used two Aramaki cylinders, two sprint cylinders. Siamese together, two heads, two cylinders on one crankcase. So it was almost identical arrangement to the CTX 700, but it was an air-cooled motor that um, actually had some racing success. It was not the world beater, I think, that it was intended to be, but it was a very cool-looking bike that was wider than an Aramaki but still had that low center of gravity and from all reports uh handled really well because of it hmm. and and they in order to keep the length down it uh like the Aramaki was in a 
hang frame. It it did not have a cradle that went under the engine. It just hung from the top of the the crankcases in a in a kind of a trellis frame. Yeah. And, but it is very 1960s in the very stretched out lay over the tank kind of way. Yes, yes. I I was unfamiliar with this bike, but it's it's very cool. I like it. Not something that a whole lot of people are familiar with. So hopefully you learned something today. Yeah, no, this is it's pretty cool. I dig it. Well, that brings us probably to the end of another episode. Uh, I'm sorry Garrett's not here. I know that some of you feel like uh, we miss out on a lot when he's not. Uh, I think both Eric and I would definitely agree with you. Absolutely. And uh, there's a reason there's three of us, and it works best when we're all here. So hopefully next week he will be here. And he just sent us a picture of his Nighthawk that he has just repainted in a nice gloss black and did a from what I can tell from the little cell phone snap, a really nice job. That it, chrome on the exhaust and the rear shock looks really nice, too. Yeah, yeah. But he kind of knows his stuff. He does. And he has, like, a real shop to work in, too. It, yes, exactly. <laughs> that helps. So hopefully next time we'll get an update from Garrett on everything that he's been up to, and we'll see you next time. Eric, thanks again. Thanks, Pete. Bye-bye.